basically answers the question you asked before, which is, am I going to use a bank where, where the protocols are in the background, or am I going to access Aave and Compound and whatever directly, right? And the answer is, in our opinion, the former for 95, probably 99% of people. You're going to access Abra Bank, and within Abra Bank, you're going to earn yield. You're going to be able to trade. You're going to be able to borrow. And you're going to basically be using something similar to MetaMask in the background. You just won't know it. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the creator and issuer of USDC. With over 1.5 million holders globally, USDC is the preferred stablecoin of not only DeFi, but our entire industry. You'll hear more about USDC later in the show. All right, everyone. We're going one-on-one, mano-a-mano with Bill Barheit, one of my favorite folks in crypto, CEO of Abra, founder of Abra. Uh, real, I think we tossed around the word OG a lot. I think, Bill, you gave the first ever uh, TED Talk back in the day, like 2011 on Bitcoin. So been here for a while. Uh, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, man. So great to see you. Congrats to you guys as well and all the success. It's been awesome to watch. I appreciate it. I am I'm repping. Bill and I are twinning today. I'm repping my Abra shirt as well. Gotta represent um Bill. Yeah, you uh you yeah, we got I know, I know people gotta watch this on YouTube. We're twinning out here. We we, we give good swag. Exactly. You do, you guys do have good swag. You do have good swag. So um before getting into crypto, I want to talk about macro. You came on the show uh in April of 2021, I think it was. It was like April or May of 2021. And you basically laid out kind of like your thesis and some predictions. And in your view, what you saw happening in 2021 was market was going to get crazy. There was still a bunch of excess liquidity in the system. Look out for big bull market in 2021. But you said, look out for 2022. Things could get a little scary. Inflation gets out of control. Interest rates hike up. Market comes down. And I will, <laughs> I've got to give it to you. got to give credit where credit is due. Uh, you've done pretty well with those predictions. But one of the big themes that you were talking about is, what Ray Dalio talks about for the fourth turning macro fans out there, what uh, who's it? Neil Howe talks a lot of, a lot about, which is like this eighty yep. to hundred year debt cycle that's coming in. And you tweeted out, "Don't try to trade the end of an eighty year debt cycle uh, back in July." So I just want to get, can you explain high level this concept of the eighty year debt cycle bubble and where you see us at today in relation to this bubble? Sure, um, Ray Ray explains it better than I do, but but my my simpleton explanation is based upon this idea of human frailty. Uh, commingled with uh, idealistic economic theory, right? So, so monetary theory, in my opinion, should be based upon this idea of sound hard money, where human beings shouldn't be able to interfere with the definition of that money. And traditionally, we've 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 always tried our best to do that at the beginning of these cycles, right? The last cycle was no different, right? We I think I think pre World War II, we we were maintaining forty percent gold reserves, and basically post Bretton Woods, it was one hundred percent, and you know the the Western powers all agreed to to let us hold their gold, uh, and and basically peg everything to to the dollar. So uh, for for foreign uh, settlements, and so what happens over time is is that human frailty comes into play, and uh, because this isn't mathematically set in stone, you know politicians are allowed to more or less change this whenever they want, and they do. So in the current debt cycle, right, uh, Nixon took us off the the gold standard in in seventy one. Uh, after we couldn't afford to finance the, the Vietnam War anymore uh, without running up uh, massive debts, and that continued. And we all know what's happened to the purchasing power of, of the dollar ever since. But what people don't realize is we didn't invent this concept. This has happened many times in the past. As a matter of fact, it's happened you know, 10 times over the last 750 years, 
right? So, so it does appear, uh, again, Dalio, his, his, his uh, Changing World Order book is phenomenal. He does a very good job of laying out the reasons why we appear to be in the late stages of this current debt cycle, which we talked about uh, when, we, when we last met. And this is continuing. Um, all the macro stuff that we're seeing now really, really supports my thesis, unfortunately. Uh, and um, yeah, I, you know, this, this new term of the fourth turning is, is getting traction uh, with, uh, with a lot of folks now. And it seems that we're, we're you know, heading in that direction. Yeah, I, it, it's kind of crazy to see a bunch of the fourth turning, like the macro folks, uh, the you know the Lynn Alden camp and the uh, dollar uh, who is it, the dollar milkshake guy. Um, like a lot of these folks, I've been listening to for years. I'm like, oh man, I'm like probably too sucked into your guys's macro bubbles here and like too uh, bought into the like macro podcast scene. But man, you guys seem pretty smart right now. Um, so I'm just curious, like where you see us like what is the what's your framework for like how you're viewing it september 2022 like how do you what's your framework for viewing like where we are almost right now yeah it's tough uh, and the reason it's tough is that i think that uh, you know ralph powell has this comment crypto is macro macro is crypto and that's one of the reasons why um, as kind of a, a reformed fixed income guy i i do feel like i get the basics and crypto has enabled that, a lot of that, and 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 it's become part of my day job to understand where this is going. The the challenge is that we're in this environment because crypto is macro, macro is crypto, where we're very dependent upon what the Fed does. And at the margins, um, when when you're in a leveraged economy where where everybody's been dependent upon thirty years of falling interest rates, when that breaks, it's ugly, and it broke. Okay, uh, the, the the bond markets are are basically have been crashing. Uh, since more or less late spring. And that has to stop at some point because our economy is completely dependent upon that not happening. Okay. So we're at this kind of essential tension right now, in my view, where, you know, interest rates are, are going up. The markets expect that that has to stop because things are breaking. The yen is tanking. It's in free fall. It's becoming worthless. Um, the tide has gone out in Russia, in Europe because of Russia. Now we can see who was naked and it was the entire European economy all along. Right, the lack of the, the zero growth in in Europe since more or less the late eighties, uh, as opposed to negative growth, was more or less predicated on a combination of cheap energy and U.S. exports to to, to the U.S. Uh, and and the exports to the U.S. aren't going to work in a model where the dollar is skyrocketing, and you know Russia is basically we we basically said you can't buy Russian oil anymore. So, so, so Europe is going to have an abysmal winter unless it becomes the warmest winter in history. Europe's in trouble, right? Uh, and and you know you can just look at a, a series of policy blunders that we've made over the years, the last few years that have led us to this point. But it, and to a certain degree, it was kind of inevitable just because of, of the dollar's position in the market. So now the question is: the Fed has become a horrible trailing indicator for the current state of affairs. They look at um, inflation, core inflation data, CPI, and you know things. You know, anyway, anyway, like things like rent, okay, which are always going to come last, right? Inflation has hit a brick wall. The economy in the U.S. has hit a brick wall, right? And and they will admit it. Probably when when we're in month five of the recession, you're going to basically hear them pat, uh, hear them kind of pat themselves on the back, where they basically say, "Okay, mission accomplished." Um, we, we see that the core data is now aligned with our, our stated goal of getting inflation under control, and we're going to pause and watch what happens. When they say that, what they actually mean is 
we're all fucked. The economy hit a wall months ago and we don't know what to do next, right? But we're certainly not going to keep raising rates. And we're actually pretty close to that, right? If you look at the, the IMS data, it's, it's basically going to like, it's, it's, it looks like it's ready to fall off a cliff. Um, supply chains are basically saying, you know, factory orders are, are basically way out of whack with reality and that, you know, inventories are going to go through the roof and it's going to be an ugly Christmas. So I don't know, but if that's all true, but that's kind of my, it's kind of my base case right now is that the yeah. economy has hit a brick wall and the next four months are going to be ugly. Economy hits a brick wall. Next four months are going to be ugly. You tweeted last week, uh, look for short-term weakness in risk on assets, but then look for the big fed pause in Q4. After that, it's game on. What, what does the, what does, what does that mean? So, so the big Fed pause is what I just said. When they basically, um, you know, have no stop choice yanking, but stop yanking interest rates up. Yeah. Right now, now the market is 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 basically assuming that that's going to happen now, and it scares me a little bit. But but for the most part, the, the path of of pain, uh, as Raul likes to say, for most assets right now is up, and and I think the markets are going to seek the path of of, of of optimum pain here. And, and I do think that the Fed is going to have no choice but to pause. I thought it would come in September. Now I think it's going to be either November or December. Um, I think the markets are pricing in high threes, maybe 4% before the pause comes. At that point, and maybe even leading up to that, I think we're going to see a, a big, fast move up in risk on assets. Now, I'm not day trading this. That's not my job. My, most of our clients don't want to day trade this. So the point for them being that, hey, we can accept the fact that there may be a little bit of short-term volatility, you know, at, at slightly off the lows uh, from the summer. But, you know, the, the, the 30-year kind of downward channel in interest rates is going to get back on track because the Fed is going to have no choice via this pause but to admit what they've done. And even if they don't use those words, and it's going to be game on for risk on assets at that point. Uh, interesting. So you, you think that, that this all happens, that this all comes to fruition, probably like latter half of this year, maybe early half of, uh, of next year. Oh, I'd be shocked if it took until next summer, but I, I, I would say, you know, the last shoe to drop will be unemployment and the rate of, of job openings is now plummeting. And I think we're going to basically see actual, uh, full employment percentages, uh, plummet going into the Q1. And we'll see if they wait until then. My guess is, is that we get the pause in sometime between November and January. Um, you know, we'll see. Where is the, so like if you read Dahlia's book, you've got this like the the big cycle uh, behind like empires rising and falling. You've got like New World Order kicks it off. Then you've got like prosperity, debt, big debt bubble. Uh, and then like it's kind of like peaks out with this like big wealth gap, uh, which then like tips over into this debt bust. Uh, I think Dahlia would argue that China's like, going up right now. They're in the big debt bubble. Big wealth gap is coming. U.S. is on the other side of the debt bus. So U.S. is like, they've start, uh, we started printing money and credit. The next phase would be, rep, obviously, what Dalio would say is revolution and war, which then mm. leads to debt and political yeah. restructuring, and then new world order. Sometimes yeah. I, um, I, one of my issues maybe that I take with uh, like the Bitcoin, the, the, the like very core, like hardcore Bitcoin crowd is that to for bitcoin to have success uh or it's almost like the worst the u.s does you're almost like rooting against the u.s you end up like when you are have a disproportionate amount of your wealth yeah. in in bitcoin you almost end up rooting against the u.s and you're like yes like 
war, like revolution, like the failure of the US dollar, like that would mean yeah. Bitcoin would go up to a million dollars. Do you like I'm curious how you just uh, how you think I about get that. your point. I have a lot of I'd call them crypto friends who are at their core hardcore anarchists. And and, you know, I, I don't root for the dollar to fail. I don't root for any economy to fail. I, I'm, I think I'm a realist and I recognize that when you're basically creating a, a, a bond market driven debt bubble like the one that we've been creating for the last 45 years, that it's unsustainable. It's just it has nothing to do with your political ideology. It's mathematics. And so so I have this this kind of you know visceral reaction to like, yeah, the, it's finally going to fail to know, you know, we can still fix this, right? We could adopt a hard money standard, gold or something else, or or do something else, or adopt a digital money that you can't inflate. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I think I think they're going to let it fail, and and they'll figure out a way to restructure debt, and you know, and and the U.S. won't be the power that it was because we won't be able to settle transactions in dollars at global scale like we can today, and maintain reserve currency status. And I think we're 15 years away, which is not a long time. I think we're 15 to 20 years away from that happening. And the question back to your original point is, is there going to be war? I don't know. I don't want it to happen. I have no reason to believe that this time is any different since, you know, it's like the matrix or in the 23rd version of the matrix where we're on the 15th version of trying to create sound money and we keep failing, but we keep failing for the same reasons. And there is an out this time. I just don't think that the powers that be feel any incentive whatsoever than to continue the course that we're on. Yeah. It's funny when I see things like, um, uh, tornado cash and like the U S sanctioning mm -hmm. tornado cash, this feels like, um, I just went, uh, whitewater rafting. So I'm thinking I'm going to use a uh, rafting analogy here, which is like, I feel like the U S has fallen out of the boat. They're going down these like class four rapids. They've fallen out of the boat and they're like grabbing onto the shore and like grabbing onto these like twigs and the twigs almost just like, they can't, they can't hang on. And like, that's what yeah. it feels like when I see them doing things like trying to sanction tornado cash. I'm like, you guys have fallen out of the boat. You're just trying to hang on. Sure. I don't know. Sure. There's yeah. so much wag the dog politics that goes on right now. And it's, it, it, it and again, is we didn't invent this. If you go back in history in these stages, it's happened many times. I mean, all of the kind of focus on, you know, SEC enforcement of, of, of crypto companies. And like you said, you know, let's sanction software, sanction software. How do you sanction software? <laughs> it's out there. You know, like the RIA tried to sanction uh, uh, BitTorrent. It didn't work out too well. Right. And this is more resilient than that. So what is your plan? Well, obviously the plan is we don't have a plan except to basically divert attention from the eye of Mordor towards, you know, something else. And I guess tornado cash right now is something else. I'm not saying that tornado cash isn't to, 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 to the, to the wag the dog concept. It's not yeah. used for anything nefarious, but any technology tool is used for something nefarious, anything. I don't care what it is, right? Are we going to outlaw pencils? Because I could, if you were standing next to me, I could stab you in the eye with a pencil, you know? So obviously this has not been well thought through. And but the bigger point is, what's the plan? What's the broader plan here? And there is none. Remind me to take a look to see if you have a pencil in your hand next time I uh, stand next <laughs> to you at desk. So I'll, uh, I'll keep an eye on that. But I, I, I do want to get your take. Actually, I want to go a little deeper into crypto here. Um, speaking of Bitcoin, one thing I've been kind of debating on uh, on calls with Mike recently, and we've been trying to talk through this, is like, uh, 
almost just like what is the narrative for Bitcoin and what is, mm-hmm. I mean, narrative is kind of a fluffy word, but like the investment thesis, you know, ETH, mm-hmm. the ETH uh, Bitcoin correlation is like, uh, it's going back to what looks like highs that we haven't seen since like 2017, mm-hmm. like the height of the bull yep. market. But we're also in the in the depths of the bear, usually in the depths of a bear, uh, you would see the bit, you know, Bitcoin uh, doing much better than than ETH. Um, but you're not seeing that this time around. And like we're we're yep. heading into the merge. Uh, you've got like all the narrative, the conversation is around Ethereum. And it just kind of makes me think about like, what is the thesis for Bitcoin right now in your mind? Yeah. So I have a very clear vision in my mind about where Bitcoin wants to go and where Ethereum wants to go and why. And and they will, I'll, I'll explain that. I, but to your comment about, about, about the, the, the price movements and, and correlation, I do think they will diverge at some point. I don't know whether it's going to be three months or three years or 30 years. And I don't really care that much because my macro thesis is, is points to both of them going higher for different reasons over time. Uh, for me, Bitcoin is basically fully committed to the, being the base layer of a hard monetary system. And Ethereum is fully committed to being you know, the, the decentralized internet, the application layer for a decentralized internet. And so, so as hard money, it's very hard to change. You, know, you can't change the atomic structure of gold, for example. And it should be not equally hard, but but extremely hard because it's software to change that base layer of, of this new monetary system that Bitcoin wants to be. And hence, you know, no no appetite obviously for anything other than proof of work, which I totally understand. There should have been an appetite for for increasing the block size. I I, I was on the wrong side of that that debate. I still don't think I was wrong. I just lost. There's a difference, <laughs> and 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 so, oh, so you, um, you, th- you think Bitcoin should have increased the should have increased hundred percent. There's there's zero. There's still there's just as little doubt in really? my mind today as there was back then. Really, um, really, because wait, can you can you tell me more about that? Oh, Occam's razor. The the, the simplest answer to scaling Bitcoin is not tap. T- by the way, Taproot is an amazing you know, uh, innovation and, and upgrade for Bitcoin. Uh, I have no problem with Schnorr signatures and all the other things that, 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 that improve Bitcoin over time, even though they're hard and they are a little complex. The path of least resistance is to increase the block size, which Satoshi herself, himself, wrote about many, many times in very clear terms how Moore's Law supports the scaling of Bitcoin to a certain degree at the base layer, completely ignored, no one is interested in. And so I've, 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 it's fine. I've forgotten about it for the most part and I move on. But as the base layer of money, it needs a modicum of scalability at the base layer, but we've put all of our eggs in the kind of bank slash lightning uh, basket for scalability of of Bitcoin, with the base layer being relatively small. Um, and and you know it is what it is, right? And but but that's mm. independent of of what, how a billion people can access Bitcoin. It is sound money. It's past the, you know, Gavin used to refer to Bitcoin as a test, uh, you know, in, in 13, 14, maybe even up to 15. Nobody refers to Bitcoin as a test anymore. And so since it's here, since it has real world use, since it is used in Ukraine and, in, 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 you know, Venezuela and Turkey and people are reliant on it, it's incumbent upon us to make sure it has zero downtime, is secure uh, and it just works and it does. Why didn't, can you take me, like the, I don't want to get too sidetracked by the block size wars. There's probably a, a whole podcast, oh, an entire show that you could do around this, like several different episodes. But I mean, this was kind of a war that, ra- a battle that waged on from like what, mid 2015 to the end of 2017, uh, concluding probably like November, December, 2017. Why didn't your like 
what 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 happened here? Can you just kind of conclude the story for folks who are maybe newer to the space? There's a really, really good book on it. I don't agree with the way the book was written in terms of like it's very supportive of the, the side yeah. that won. But ultimately, in my opinion, what it came down to is is there was this there was a corporate faction of exchanges, folks like myself, wallets, um, and then there was the developer kind of anarchist faction. Okay. And the corporate faction wanted the block size increase. They, they recognized that the utility of Bitcoin over time was going to decrease. Um, the, the fees for on-chain transactions were skyrocketing. I, I remember when, um, when, when mining fees or network fees you know, per transaction were averaging like $40 uh, in, in late 17. And you know, you, at that point, I mean, everything just changed in terms of the utility of Bitcoin. And, and you know, then there was this kind of backdoor agreement to uh, you know basically increase the block size after we uh, activated SegWit, and that agreement was really only done with the, the this kind of corporate side of, of of Bitcoin supporters, and really had no kind of deep interaction with the core developer community, uh, node operators. Some miners were involved. And so, you know, people felt like, hey, because Bitcoin has no CEO, because Bitcoin is not a company, how is it that you group of corporate types are thrusting this solution on top of us? And, and, and who are you? Right. You're not Bitcoin. And, and they're 100 percent right in that regard. Right. The way that that the corporate part of this community tried to, to hammer the upgrade on top of the rest of the world was its fatal flaw. And that never should have happened. And my guess is, is that if if. If we had figured out a way as a community to have an intelligent discussion, um, we would have much bigger blocks today and we wouldn't be having this discussion because it wouldn't have been a corporate driven thing. But anyway, it, it, there's, a, there's a couple of actually pretty good books on this already. So. Yeah, we'll put a show. I think it's Jonathan Beer wrote a book on this. We'll, we'll throw a link in the show notes. That's, that's, I mean, let me, not about the block size words, but does that make you skeptical? If you think that the community made the wrong decision here, Bill, does that make you skeptical on like DAO decision making? No, no, because it's competition, okay. right? So, so the difference is that you can have a million DAOs trying to do the same thing, and all basically come to different conclusions via vote on what they should try, and 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 over and and it's like, um, you know, it's the same as evolution, right? Over time, you know, different changes give you different uh, benefits, depending upon what environment you live in, and hopefully the cream rises to the top, and 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 the strongest survive. Bitcoin is a little bit different because it has network effects as hard money without a lot. There's not a lot of competition for that right now. And, and so um, that leads to this, this prevailing perspective that it shouldn't change. It should be as close to its structure for all time and changes are, are slow and hard. And I, I conceptually, I do agree with that. Um, but, but the idea of changing the block size is not about changing Bitcoin itself. It's not. Yeah. And, and and so it's um, the the ability to change a block size is actually a built-in feature, uh, and 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 so so there's a there's a two different. So, so your question is 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 a little bit of a non sequitur because I'm not really talking about changing the structure of Bitcoin. Yeah, interesting. So what I'm I want to get back to ETH and Bitcoin, Bill, because what I'm really leading to here is I'm almost pushing us down this like proverbial thought funnel into this like huge announcement that you guys have coming up, which I don't want to unveil yet. I want to I want to hold back on that for a second. Uh, but I do want to get your take on just make I just want to make sure I understand your thesis here. It it sounds like your thesis is that uh, crypto is the future of like future of banking and, and and finance will be built on crypto rails. 
uh, crypto-based banking is the future of financial systems. In this system, Bitcoin is will be used as collateral. ETH will be used as like the transaction layer and the token layer, and things will get built on top of Ethereum. Am I am I like understanding your thesis correctly? Fantastic. I need to record you. So, <laughs> so totally agree. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, in the, so in this system, like when you look at things like uh, you know we talk a lot about MakerDAO on the show, or like Compound or Aave, or some of these like blue chip tier one DeFi protocols, the the collateral is, it's not Bitcoin, it's it's ETH, right? So do you think that like eventually mm-hmm. Bitcoin gets, like all Bitcoin gets wrapped and moves on moves on chain? Like I almost want to talk more t- tactically about how that actually happens. Yeah, so so that's a fantastic question. That's why I think, you know, products like like ThorChain are, are really interesting uh, because then you can start to, to, to do things like cross chain in a way that don't break the core tenants, meaning if you have to basically wrap Bitcoin and trust a central custodian in order to use Bitcoin as collateral in DeFi, you're you're defeating the purpose of having DeFi because now you've created an unnecessary weak link in the chain, which is the trusted third party holding all the Bitcoin, right? And and so, you know, I think some of these kind of cross-chain protocols will be able to deal with Bitcoin collateral uh, using smart contract based models over time, and that's that's the promise of some of this stuff to me for composability and uh, and and other, you know, we'll, we'll see. But but it's very complicated. It's very early. But I also think that there is a case to be made that for certain types of transactions, using ETH as collateral is okay, right? So so the two aren't necessarily at odds with each other. Um, and and you know, Ethereum I think is going to go up in in price because of all the use cases, because of the fact that it's really become deflationary ahead of where Bitcoin is, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it's never going to be sound hard money the way the way Bitcoin is or is becoming simply because of this philosophy that as the future application layer of the internet, it needs to evolve to meet all of the requirements of the application layer of the internet. And those requirements are changing over time. And we haven't even gotten to scalability yet. That's coming next after, you know, after the uh, after the merge. As an Empire listener, you know the power of stablecoins. These dollar digital currencies that transcend borders, banking hours, and legacy financial rails. Circle's USDC has quickly become one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in our entire industry. It's simple. People use USDC because of its composability, stability, and reserve transparency. And USDC isn't only adopted by us empire DeFi degens, DAOs, NFT marketplaces, crypto companies leverage USDC to diversify their treasury, asset management, and ecosystem-wide composability. This adoption is evident in USDC's growth. They've grown to more than $50 billion in circulation since launching USDC just four years ago in 2018. We all have and will continue to take shots on our favorite cryptos, but USDC remains one of the easiest ways to store your funds in a reliable, stable asset that can be used to send value around the world almost instantly, lowers the cost of cross-border payments, and integrates into the growing ecosystem of Web3 apps and DeFi applications. As a seamless, trusted dollar digital currency, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the global financial system. Learn more about Circle and USDC by checking out the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. Hmm. 
let's let's tie Abra into all of this, right? This we've got global macro, we've got the end of this 80-year debt cycle, we've got your thesis on Bitcoin as collateral, ETH is this transaction layer, we've got DeFi that's getting built, and then obviously we have Abra. It's been a really rocky uh time in crypto for some of the like central well, centralized mm -hmm. platforms. And there are some that honestly didn't make it through this through and won't make it yeah. through this bear market. You guys have done incredibly well, it seems like through through this. I mean, you guys have you've tr uh processed over like seven billion in transactions i think you're in 150 countries you've got like mm -hmm. um these are probably old numbers but like two million users a couple billion under management you guys seem to have done incredibly well i'm curious how did you guys yeah. do so well through the bear market when some of your competitors not only struggled but a couple of them went under sure so so this is something that i predicted was going to happen if you go back and, and look at other interviews i've done and um you know, it wasn't just me trying to slam competitors. It was me watching kind of, you know, cowboyish banking practices uh, with no sense of risk management and, and you know, ethical practices and, and unethical practices in many cases. But, but let me take a step back. So we built Abra as the crypto banking service that we wanted for ourselves. So I said, okay, I'm going to do one of two things. I'm going to build the service I want. Or I'm just going to basically make it work via hardware wallets and DeFi and do a whole bunch of stuff that I don't want to have to do. Um, and and so we basically designed Abra to have the you know ability to earn yield, the ability to trade, the ability to borrow against holdings. We're launching a credit card. My my goal for this year was to originally to be able to turn off my bank account and have Abra become my default bank account. We're coming. We're, we're inching closer. Uh, the credit card that we announced with Amex is, is getting us very close. And then there's some other cash features that, that we'll be adding later, uh, but we're getting closer to that. On top of that, you have the response, responsibility as a crypto bank for you know tried and true risk management practices, which aren't crypto specific. There are pieces that are crypto specific when you're doing things like DeFi to generate yield, but collateralized lending has been around for decades. This is not a new concept, right? I mean, look at long-term capital management in the 90s. It, it, what happened in the last few months or over the spring and summer looks and smells exactly like that. The fact that it was crypto versus equities makes no difference, right? So that's why Abra has managed to thrive in this environment because we recognized from the beginning that these risk management practices were going to be necessary in order to have a long-term view of where crypto is going as the future of banking. All right, so we, we've got Abra set up. You've got you've had amazing success in all these different areas. You've got the private wealth management division. You've got the retail side of the business, what I would call like the prosumer. You've got the institutional side up and running. You had this goal to create, uh, to basically unbank yourself, which I think is a good goal. Uh, it's a good product vision, I would say, to be able to use it yourself. Where, like, what was the missing step to unbanking yourself? Uh, because I think a lot of folks have had that. A lot of you guys might have had that for years. Your competitors might have had that. But there's always this like missing link of having, uh, I'll, I'll let you fill in the gaps, but like what has been missing and uh, I guess lead us into what you guys are launching. So so I, I think this idea of kind of unbank yourself is not really realistic. We, we it's, it, it, Also, nobody really, the average consumer anyway, doesn't think that way. The average mm. consumer says, okay, am I getting a high quality service? Am I getting access to my investments? If I want to invest in crypto, uh, do I trust my bank, first of all, right? Are they doing right by me? And I think the issue with the banking system is that a lot of people don't trust the banks. The banks don't want to have a certain type of customer because of all these kind of 
you know, draconian compliance and risk issues that they're felt that they're faced with and dealing with constantly. So what I wanted is I want to basically have a crypto centric service for managing my money, making payments, because I believe that's the future of banking and we want to lead the way in that. And so that's how we've kind of looked at this, you know, un- unbank yourself model. I wanted to be able to turn off my bank account, not because I want to live in a cash economy. I want to live in a crypto centric economy because I believe that's the future. I believe it gives me more choice around lending. It gives me a stable monetary asset to hold my money in over time. Uh, it gives me access to be able to have a single kind of source of truth for everything that I do versus you know the current system. And I'm not going to. I'm hopefully not going to have my account turned off because you know I'm buying Bitcoin with my debit card, which I hear every day, right? So so that's what it means to us to be crypto first, crypto centric. So what were, what's the, like, what was the blocker basically? Cause I know a lot of folks have tried to do this, but what was the blocker to actually becoming like this crypto centric bank that, you know, I'm sure like if, I, if I'm using Wells Fargo or bank of America, like I do still, you can put more and more capital on the platforms, but like, I still need to have a bank account uh, for a lot of different things. Like It's a combination of embracing the, the right regulations. Uh, we're a global company. So it's not just in the U S but embrace embracing the right regulatory models globally putting the services in place that deal with what 80% of a user needs to do with their bank account, right? So you need to be able to pay your bills, get your deposits, um, you know, buy stuff at the point of sale, uh, get access to credit when you need it, uh, school loans, car loans, mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. So those are all the pieces that you're going to see over time. We have people using crypto as credit today to take out, you know, million dollar loans, at very low interest rates, or in some cases, 0% interest using Bitcoin as collateral. We announced the American Express card, which we're going to launch uh, targeting Q4, that will allow you to make purchases using either crypto as collateral or your existing credit report, or both, right? So so all of these things needed to be very well thought through to kind of get Abra to the next step, you know, which we're, which we're obviously announcing today. And and it's a, it's a never-ending game, meaning, meaning we're going to be at this for years, and and I think we're going to leapfrog the traditional banking system uh, in in the next few months is is my prediction. Hmm. So is your goal to have folks like right now again like for me I have traditional like I would call them traditional bank accounts like a Bank of America or a Chase or a Wells Fargo account and then I've got my you know my Abra account and, and and others. Is the goal to basically help folks move away from the Wells Fargo and the Bank of America and Chase eventually? Yeah. I think when you see how stable coins work now, how you can earn yield on stable coins, how you'll be able to use stable coins for, for a combination of cash payments uh, with, with finality, right? Where you, you might as a merchant offer a discount where, where there's no reversal to something like credit-based payments where you can borrow against Bitcoin where there is you know the opportunity for reversing a charge per normal American Express, Visa, MasterCard network standards. All of that is possible with crypto and not with a traditional bank. Now, some of that you can do with MetaMask and DeFi today if you're not only initiated, but you're very technically astute. Um, you can deal with key management. We call it, you know, if you have a PhD in MetaMask and you can deal with the madness, that's fine. But the, the, the opportunity for a billion people is to become the bank that does what MetaMask enables with a simple user experience, key management built in so that you don't have to know anything about it. But... 
one of the core tenants should be I can take my stuff offline whenever I want, even if I'm trusting the bank for when they mm-hmm. are managing my stuff. And they're right size in terms of regulation. And, and, and that's what we're moving towards, right? I see you know, Abra's future as basically the crypto bank that basically says, we're going to do what MetaMask does, but we're going to make it trivially easy. You're not going to see all of this nonsensical, you know, what's my backup phrase? You know, how do I sign this transaction to move forward? All the stuff that people don't understand. And that's going to become the bank of the future. It really, so it feels like there's one of the biggest, Santiago and I talk about this a lot. There's this big dichotomy in crypto between like leaning in, becoming regulated, KYC, AML, like basically setting up your, your, uh, your company for success, like in the United States uh, and capturing as large of a market as possible. The other side of it is like staying as decentralized as possible, creating a very censorship resistant system at the expense of users. And like, I would honestly say a good example of this is like fellow OG uh, Eric Voorhees, who mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm assuming you you know decently well. Just we know each other quite well. Yeah. In the space, like he opted for the censorship resistant decentralized route, lost yeah. probably 98% of users, but like kept the like I don't know like the tried and true like crypto ethos. So I, I'm just curious, like how you. That when you like, I just I don't know. I'm I'm trying to figure out the question here. Like, how do you measure those two? Uh, I, yeah, I think trust is a spectrum, and I think the need for trustlessness yeah. is also a spectrum, and that need goes from Venezuela, Ukraine, Turkey, to U.S., Singapore, you know, Switzerland on the other side, and and within that entire spectrum of the need for trustless systems and the need for decentralization, there are going to be pockets of users all the way on my right here that are still going to want to be you know, their own bank via hardware wallets because they can and they understand what I just said. Whereas the vast majority of people have no idea what a hardware wallet is, what a private key is. Even with Bitcoin at 600 million market cap, they have no idea. Okay, And, and so the role of a crypto bank should be to provide those on-ramps and off-ramps provide high quality services that I can get myself via a hardware wallet or MetaMask if I know what I'm doing via DeFi and you know other lending compound and other protocols, but to eliminate the complexity of having to understand how those protocols work. From my user experience, all I'm saying is you want to borrow? Here's the interest rate. Here's the collateral requirements. Here's the contract side. You want to earn yield? Here's the product. Here's what we do with your with your collateral that you're depositing. Here's how much you earn. Here are the terms. Here's the contract. Sign it. Okay. So so and we can disclose what protocols we may be using if you want to dig in to either you as the consumer or the regulator who's overseeing that space on your behalf. Because in banking, there's no such thing as caveat emptor, right? The regulator plays that role, whether we like it or not. That's what it is. That's what they do. Right. So so you're now disclosing those things to the regulator who's saying, yes, we accept that it's okay that you're using this DeFi protocol to generate yield, for example, or that you're basically doing collateralized lending to generate yield or that you're lending to consumers who have deposited collateral with you and you're doing X, Y, Z with the collateral. Hmm. Right. So so that's the future of banking, in my opinion. Some people are calling it now like a Web 2.5 approach where where Web 3 protocols are used with a Web 2 interface, which gets you, you know, 75% of the way there from a decentralization perspective. But the key in that point, pardon my pun, is, is that you still have to be able to take possession of your stuff whenever you want. That's a, that assumes, of course, you haven't given it to somebody as collateral. 
in which case that's fine. I mean, you, you, you accepted that risk when you did that, but, but if it's a savings account or a trading account or a liquid yield generating account, I need to be able to take that stuff out 24 seven whenever I want. And if yeah. I'm not able to do that, there's something wrong with your service. Yeah. So when you look at the DeFi right now, like you look at the compounds and Aves and makers and Uniswaps of the world, do you see them eventually getting mass user adoption? Do you see them competing with the, the fintech companies, the neo banks, the traditional banks, or do you see them sitting in the background enabling services like, like Abra to generate yield yeah. and, and et cetera? Yeah. I, I see it at scale as the latter uh, because they'll never be able to reach the, 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 the billions. Never. With the because of the experience. complexity or because of the regulation? Because of the complexity, right? Yeah. So, so I don't. I think it, outside the U.S., the U.S. is 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 three hundred. Is three. Let's let's round it up. Four hundred million people out of eight billion, right? So, so the vast majority of of the planet does not worry about regulation as it relates to using all the services you just mentioned. They don't. Okay. So, so that's not the issue. That's not the, what's hindering the population. What's hindering the population is, okay, hey, mom, I'm going to get you set up to basically trade some crypto. First, go uh, open up Chrome. Oh, you don't use Chrome? Okay, install Chrome. What's Chrome? Okay, she knows what Chrome is now. Now, you need to install this MetaMask extension on your Chrome browser. Okay, great. What's an extension? You got it? You understand what extension? Okay, what's MetaMask? Uh, you know, you see where we're going with this, right? So, so that's step two, by the way. I'm not even at step eight, nine, and ten. So, so you've already lost... 95% of Joe and Jane public. All right. So, so the question, but my mother uses, I think she uses bank of America. Uh, I, I have a bank of America app. Can I use that? <laughs> That's probably what she would ask me. Right. Now you can laugh at that question and, and, and it is funny, but the reality is when you think it through, it's a, it's a very logical question. I have a bank account. Why can't I use my bank account to do all the stuff you're talking about? Right. And, and we, we know why she can't, but it doesn't make sense to her. Okay, so so we want to be that Bank of America for the next generation, and and yeah. that's going to need the services you just described. Now, to your question, I don't know if it's going to be Sushi or Ave, and are they going to have competitors that kill them? Are they going to scale? Are they going to are, are other companies that we have protocols we haven't thought of going to rule? I don't know. That's that's yeah. one of the things I love about our space. But but those protocols, whatever they become, are the, the protocols that are going to be the future banking. What you guys just rolled out today, was this a tech challenge, a product challenge, a uh, a licensing challenge, a regulatory challenge? Like, how did you go about, what, what, like, what, almost like all of it, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me explain uh, what, what, what we did uh, in, in clear terms and what's, what we're, you know, what we're announcing and, and, um, and, and then I'll put, put it all in, in context if, if that works. Great. Um, so, so today we're, we're announcing, uh, a couple of things. We're announcing the formation of Abra Bank. Uh, Abra Bank is uh, a, a U.S. Uh, state-chartered uh, depository institution. Uh, it's in the process of being formed, and it should be live either late this year or early next year. All U.S. users, uh, retail and our private banking, and probably our institutional will be migrated to be customers of Abra Bank. To my knowledge, it's the first it will be the first depository institution dedicated to crypto live in the United States. There are several trusts that are, that are live, but there's no uh, full uh, depository institution, true bank live today in the United States. I believe this would be the first. Okay. It's something we've been working on for a couple of years. 
And then we have an international version of this, uh, which is also uh, actually going to be live sooner, probably in October. And most of our non-U.S. customers will become customers of Abra International, which is this new um, international license holder, which more or less mirrors the capabilities from a licensing perspective as its U.S. counterparts. And to your question, this is a legal challenge, which we've worked on and, and are working on now for a couple of years. It's a technical challenge. Um, it's a marketing challenge because we have to explain all of this. Uh, and, and every, you know, we're, I think we're like 165 people now. Every one of our employees is involved in, in some aspect of this, from support to sales to technology to our big legal and compliance team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let me, I'll maybe give you a layup then on the marketing side of things. What is, because I'm assuming a lot of your users will be asking the question that I'm about to ask, which is depository institution, congrats, sounds really really hard. I'm assuming this took multiple years. What does that mean for me, the user? Like how, is, yeah. how does that make the user's experience different? Okay. This, go, this basically answers the question you asked before, which is, am I going to use a bank where, where the protocols are in the background or am I going to access Aave and Compound and whatever directly? Right. And the answer is, in our opinion, the former for 95, probably 99% of people, you're going to access Abra Bank and within Abra Bank, you're going to earn yield. You're going to be able to trade. You're going to be able to borrow. And you're going to basically be using something similar to MetaMask in the background. You just won't know it, right? That's the promise of DeFi and, and Web3 for the masses, right? In a, in a, with a very usable experience that is compliant with local laws when you need a trusted third party in the middle because I have no idea how to use all this MetaMask stuff and you know, use these protocols that you, you and I were talking about earlier, right? And so Abra wants to be that Web3 bank for everyone. That's mm-hmm. it. The, the, the ultimate DeFi mullet, right? DeFi in the back, FinTech in front. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Huh. It's a composability system to put it back in DeFi terms today that basically gives you a compelling user experience where we'll curate most things for you, but not everything. We'll actually give you, uh, at some point, a full web browser inside of the Abra experience that lets you go to any site on the web today that would require something like a MetaMask or other service, but automatically uses your Abra bank account. So you don't need that deep, that, that webmask, uh, web, uh, you know, MetaMask-like experience, which everyone hates, right? And so that's where this Web3 bank is headed. And we'll be there, you know, most of that will be there this year and pieces of it will continue to launch over the next year, including the yeah. credit card and NFT support and reward points as tokens, VR, CPRX system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's all coming together under this banking umbrella now. And it's it's just us giving our customers what they've been asking for. Yeah. Now that you have these licenses, I mean, what obviously it takes six to 12 months to roll all, all, all these products out, but what comes next? Do you guys make yep. acquisitions? Do you guys, uh, do, you, do you look to go public? Yeah, well, uh, good question. So we're in final formations of these entities now. Mm. Um, the bank will be live, we hope in Q4, possibly Q1. Um, the in, That's Abra US uh, version of Abra Bank. And then the international version of Abra Bank, Abra International should be live in October. And that will come first. And, and so um, there'll be lots of changes to, uh, we're, we're, we're now calling Abra Earn, Abra Boost as of today and 
um, that will be live in the app, I think, by the end of the month. And, and there'll be announcements around that. And so there's going to be a whole bunch of changes to, to have more ways of earning yield um, that are now compliant with local bank regulations. So all of, this quest- all of these questions about how do I legally pay yield, it becomes a non-issue. In some cases, we're using DeFi. Some cases, we're using centralized lending. But a bank can pay interest, right? Hmm. So, so you know, we're basically going to be paying you interest as Abra Bank or Abra International. And so, you'll see debit products, credit products, in addition to the Amex card. You'll see cash products for getting your salary. It, it just, it's just hmm. going to keep building on this for both for for all three legs of our stool: for our retail clients, for our private banking, high net worth clients, and for institutional clients. What do you think about after this? Obviously, it takes time to roll this out. It's a big, it's a big headache to to, to roll this out. Yeah. You should pat yourself on the back. But what's next? Do you guys do you, do you look to go public in the states? What is what is the yeah. big goal? There, there's two things that really matter to me coming out of this. The first is transparency, and so as a bank, we do have to make certain disclosures public. You'll be you'll be seeing all kinds of reserve statements and you know all all the things that you would want uh, in terms of transparency for a company that is a that is a bank. Okay, and this is something that you know we 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 looked our, each other in the eye and said, okay, you know, this is a lot of work from a systems perspective, from a regulatory perspective, from a board oversight perspective, and we all decided we were ready to sign up for this. Okay, and this was a while ago, right? We're just now able to talk about it. And then the second is, you know, how do we future proof the business, right? So what's what comes after nfts you know what comes after icos well it was DeFi and nfts thank god it was something else something better right and and so well what's next what are the next type of contracts that may feel similar to nfts but really evolve the space and and we're putting the pieces in place for it not to matter what comes next so that you can automatically use abra regardless meaning if it's ethereum based or solana based or Polygon-based, thematic, it doesn't matter. You'll be able to use Abra when you go to that web page or download that app. Abra will work as your Web3 bank with that app. That's what matters most to me post-Abra Bank. Okay. Because that means that I have no reason to leave. I can trust Abra. I know Abra's got my back no matter what comes next. Okay? I think part of that is being public. It relates to both issues. As a public company, you're fully committed to transparency, disclosures. Um, you have access to capital. Uh, we want to be global, and we, you know we've always been committed to that. And so, so I think being public and, and a public-facing bank um, greatly increases our chances of of owning that Web three banking space. This is great, Bill. We're we're uh, we're rooting for you. It's re- I mean, it's really cool to see. So I think I think a lot of others will fall in your guys' footsteps. But it's cool to see you guys uh, paving paving the way here. Oh. Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of companies take this approach going forward. Um, I think it's the future of banking. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we just we're fully committed to doing it now. Yeah, agreed. Anything else, Bill, before we wrap this up? Anything else you want to you want to share? It's been a, an awesome conversation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, um, right now it's business as usual for Abra customers. You'll still see the the the, the changes uh, over the next few weeks and months with with um, Abra Boost um, the, the formation and, and rollout of Abra International for your listeners outside the U.S. Uh, is 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 coming very very soon, just a few weeks out, and then you'll have more 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 um, announcements about um, about Abra Bank as we get closer to flipping the switch on that. Amazing. Well, we're looking forward to seeing it. Um, what's the what's the action for folks? Should folks just go to Abra.com? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're already an Abra customer, there's nothing to do. It's business as usual. 
Uh, you'll see, you know, the announcement, obviously, when, when Abra Bank is fully live. But in the meantime, you just go to Abra.com, follow us on Twitter. You get all the, the great updates. And yeah, business as usual. Easy enough. Bill, we're rooting for you. Congrats again on everything. Exciting to see it all develop. And um, yeah, thanks again for coming on the pod. Thanks, brother. Great to see you. 